Welcome to Stories from the Center of the Universe, the podcast about the human experience. Rod Wilkerson, welcome to the Center of the Universe. Thank you. Thank you. I'm glad to be here. I should mention that uh, you connected to the podcast through uh, Kevin Flippin, who is known as the occasional co-host. It's been a while for Kevin, Sherrod, I'll tell you. I, I almost changed his title to he co-hosted twice. Oh, whatever. <laughs> I'm still occasional. I'm still occasional. Especially All when right, someone yeah. like Sherrod comes on. Right on. So, Sherrod, where'd you grow up? So, I grew up in... Long Island. I'm a, I'm a New York guy. Long Island, New York. You can hear it in my Long Island and in my New York. Um, <laughs> I grew up. <laughs> so I grew up in a place they call Dix Hills. It's a town in, 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 the, on the, in the middle of the island, but in, the, in Suffolk County. So one interesting fact is I was born in 1962. And I was born up north. So I think it was a little different down here in the South than it was in the North. So, and I say that because my next sentence, I, when I went to elementary school, I was the only black guy in, in my elementary school. <laughs> so look, I, I'm from the South. I was born in the wow. late sixties. Uh, I don't have memories of segregated uh, education, uh, but I can tell you Virginia public schools were segregated back when you were born uh, for sure. And, and it sounds like, I mean, you tell me, why were you the only black kid in your elementary school? Because Long Island, what people don't know about Long Island is Long Island was, and still to a degree is a very segregated Island. Mm. Uh, you know, there are places on Long Island where it, you know, black and white lived together harmoniously, but there were places where, you know, for a variety of reasons. Back then, it was primarily due to economics. This was a very affluent neighborhood, uh, a, a very affluent school district. So many couldn't afford to live there at all. Um, my father worked in a hospital. He was a an x-ray technician and uh his from him he wanted us to have like the best of of education he worked he was probably the only black x-ray technician at his hospital in queens mm. he was an air force guy uh so mm. for him it was about exposing us uh to, to the very best that he could afford. And Dix Hills was, you know, one of those uh, areas where, you know, we could integrate. There really wasn't, I didn't run into any, what I would call general racial issues. I mean, you know, occasionally you, you're always gonna find one, but it was, it was, it was a mix. But that, those are my early years. Uh, and I still have some of those friends, pretty much all of them, actually. We still, you know, laugh and and talk about, you know, because they, they hadn't really seen another black guy, <laughs> you know. It, 
1970, 67, 68. Yeah. You know, so, you know, I remember my first girlfriend. <laughs> I remember her bringing me home to play. And I didn't realize the the impact until, you know, maybe a couple of years later when Sidney Poitier's movie came out, guess who's coming home for dinner? <laughs> and oh, like we <laughs> and it was so funny. But like we had a group of us that we called the United Nations. Because um, we had one Cuban, we had one black, we had an Italian, we had an Asian, and we had uh, an Irish cat. And it, it was a group of us. <laughs> and so we would all kind of look out for each other. Um, but they would always look out kind of for me. Because, it, it, you know, it was interesting. The Cuban guy, he, he, was, he was real cool. He, he had a heavy accent. But uh, so that was my kind of my early years. And then I'd say about seventh or eighth grade, we moved. Uh, and I moved into a more segregated community in the town of Bay Shore. I don't know if you're familiar with Fire Island. Mm-hmm. Yep. But that, so that's where I, I moved to Bay Shore. So my summers were spent on fire island that's just what we did but i found it very interesting because when i moved to bay shore now i had you know been to bay shore many times because my grandmother lived in bay shore and my mother and my church and everybody was in bay shore and i had friends that were in bay shore but uh, it was just very different coming you know from an all-white school to coming to a a mixed school where it seemed to me we had more issues there <laughs> than I had in um, my old white school. You know, everybody was integrated, but they were still segregated. And we used to laugh because that was really due to us, you know, being like-minded individuals. Like I ate with the football team. Football team didn't matter. But, you know, we had, you know, a white cafeteria and a black cafeteria. But that wasn't the school's doing. I guess you just ate with who you were comfortable with. And, you know, as we look back at it, you know, we're, we're 50 years out of school. And when we all get back together for our reunions, we, you know, we talk about how great our childhood was. Uh, and the fact that it was just such a melting pot. And then some of the things, you know, when you hear, you know, what we're talking about today in society that we would have gotten crucified for <laughs> back in the day. <laughs> Times are different for sure. But we, we just, no, we just didn't think that way. I mean, it's, it's who, you know, who we were, we fought in the morning, we were friends in the evening and, you know, it, it was what it was. Now, I'm sure there were certain areas like on Long Island, like Bensonhurst. I didn't go to Bensonhurst. Uh, that's just what it was. But all of these, you know, my young life kind of shaped me. You know, I went the way I played football in high school. I also wrestled in high school. 
Um, I studied martial arts for about 15 years. I started studying martial arts at about mm, seventh or eighth grade. No, actually it was before that. I had to have been in sixth grade. Yeah, because my mother was very passive and my father, he wasn't very passive. My grandmother wasn't. And I think I came home one day uh, and no, it was even before that. And I had let somebody kind of beat me up. And my grandmother said that I better not come home beat up again. And my father put me in martial arts. And I can tell you from that point on, I never got beat up again. Uh, they call it modern day MMA. It was just something that I did back then. I didn't get paid for it. <laughs> So, <laughs> I mean, uh, you, had, you, had a, you had a good grandmother. <laughs> yeah. So, uh, and then from there, you know, I, I switched schools to another school. My mother had moved to another town and I ended up playing a year of football there and then coming back to my original town in Bayshore to live with my grandmother. And uh, I ran track and started getting a little uh, notoriety playing football. That was my, you know, my primary sport. And my college, my high school coach had played for the San Diego Chargers at one time. His name was Tom Black. Um, and he had some friends in, in some colleges that, you know, he wanted them to take a look at me. And I ended up, I ended up at Virginia State, but I was looked at by Temple and by Boston College. Temple wasn't going to happen because um, it was a city, and I was a Suffolk County cat, and I felt that if I went into the city, I and tried to go to school at the same time. Now, mind you, I wasn't no A plus student. <laughs> you know, there were I did what I had to do. Um, I had fun. But, you know, if there was going to party, I needed to be at the party. I can't jump at school later. <laughs> lot, so, lot, lot, a lot of parties in Philly, I imagine. <laughs> so I was like, nah, that's probably not going to work. And in Boston College, it was too cold up in Boston. And Boston back then was, was very different. Um, but then I got a call to bring them young. Huh. Uh, and that was really different. Uh, mind you, I have a Baptist background. My grandmother's a Baptist preacher. Utah, you know, and I knew they loved to throw the ball. You know, I wanted to go to Nebraska. That was my dream. I was like, put me in Nebraska, Tom Osborne. Here I come. You know, I wanted to play running back, you know, but they never came calling and bring them young calls and. Big, big man is there. This is like late eight, yeah, 80s. And uh, I'm like, hmm. Flew out there. It was nice. But Utah, 80s, no. Nah, we were not ready. I wasn't ready. And I'm sure they, they weren't ready. And I didn't really realize it until maybe 1990 when... Uh, you know, there was a gentleman there running back. 
who got arrested and, and kicked off the uh, football squad because he'd had a baby out of wedlock. And he was he was a black kid and his girlfriend was white. And I was like, what? It was like a state law. And Utah's different, man. Different. <laughs> different. Right, hey, hey, Absolutely. so Sherrod, let's, let's back up a little bit. Sounds like you played running back. Yeah, yeah. All right, so give, give me give me your uh, your your numbers here. How, how tall were you as a high schooler? Uh, five seven, five eight. Yeah, I didn't grow much after that. Yeah, so about five eight. I was about mm, one sixty five, one seventy. Got to college about one seventy five. So I was probably about the size of uh, Megan, David Megan, back in the day, or actually. Um, yeah, Dave, and actually now I can't think of his name. And the thing about it is I, I played on the same squad with him uh, on the practice squad for six years. I was at the Buffalo Bills uh, pra on their practice squad in 80, 85, 80, yeah, 85, 86. Um, didn't get drafted or anything. So, yeah, I was, I was fast. I was very fast. Um, I could take a hit. I played running back, and I also played at that time. But they, in high school, they called it a wing back. College slot back. Um, I would say in the pros, it was more of a scat back. I could catch out of the backfield. I wasn't an every down back um, then. Uh, but that was when you know they had the David Meggins and a couple of the other smaller receivers. They, they you know, were kind of terrorizing the NFL for a minute. Um, so I, I did that for, I'll say a summer because I couldn't get really picked up by anybody and I needed to make a decision on, you know, whether I was going to work. Plus I was already enrolled in uh, what they called uh, a late enrollment, uh, with the Navy. Um, at that, at those times you could have a delayed, uh, enrollment. And so I went to college and I did all the good stuff. And then I got a call um, from the Navy that I needed to, to, to come in to the Navy early. Uh, there was, I think it was the Grenada incident uh, and some other incidences that were going on uh, across uh, the, the world and I got called up into the Navy and I I spent you know 11 years uh, in the Navy which I loved um, but I would have never I would have I did not ever intend to make it a career it was not it was a, a secondary as my grandmother would say she said you always needed to have um, something to fall back on so if somebody had a question oh okay yeah yes, i was just uh, gonna ask how does that work so did, did you sign did you sign up for the navy while you were in college and then they said hey we need you now well yeah it was what they called delayed entry so i had gotten a scholarship uh but i had also went down to um, the recruiter and had signed in as a delayed entry. I think what happened is I was mad. 
because <laughs> I kind of remember the night. <laughs> I, I was mad at something, and I was like, you know what? If this doesn't work out, you know, I, I'll just do, you know, four years in the Navy. You know, at that time, they were saying, you know, you go into the military, you become an officer, everybody will want you. And I was going to school for physics, mind you, because I always wanted to work in science. Um, but as I, you know, matriculated through college, I realized, you know, my guidance counselor didn't guide me correctly. He didn't tell me that in addition to four years, I was going to need an additional two to three years. And yeah, you're talking to a kid that was like, okay, we get four years out of me. You're talking about two additional years? And then I'm not, I might not be guaranteed a job. I'm, you know, I'm trying to play football. You know, I'm trying to do a couple of different things here. And I had some things in the pot. Uh, and at the end of the day, you know, Uncle Sam wins. I mean, he gets what he wants. So, uh, Gerard, you signed a piece of paper just like I did. That said, if they wanted to, they could call us back now. I, yeah, I, I would. I wouldn't do that. I'm. I'm not in great shape right now, but they technically or legally could be a bad well, idea. Yeah, no, but they do. <laughs> I often tell folks what Navy really stands for is never again volunteer yourself. <laughs> <laughs> you, you learn that about uh, month two or month three, right? <laughs> uh, so, I. You know, I, I enjoyed my time there. Yeah, I can't talk much about what I did for them, but, you know, Uncle Sam, um, he spent a lot of money on me, uh, provided me with a, a set of tools that uh, very few people have in the civilian life. And I'm, I'm glad for it. But it kind of prepared me for the next phase. Um, and... In, in business or just in life, uh, the the can-do the can kind of attitude that I have where I don't believe anything is impossible. And when people say that, I'm like, well, no, I mean, everything is possible. It, you know, and, and you, you have to look at it relatively. Um, they said we couldn't fly. <laughs> you know, we're, we're flying. They said we couldn't get to the moon, you know. We got there and people often say, well, you know, the other cliche is nobody's perfect. Uh, and these are kind of principles that I live for and live by. And I say, well, that, that's not accurate. Everybody has achieved a level of perfection relative to themselves because we're here, at least I'm here uh, because I have been perfect on a number of occasions. <laughs> Otherwise, I'm, we're not having this conversation. Uh, I mean, I, I've been to Somalia. Uh, I've been to some other places that the word perfection is, that was the term of the day. Otherwise, we didn't come back. So I, I live by a lot of those principles. All right, sure, sure Rod, we're, we're going to explore the Navy more here in a, in a bit. But I want to go back to how did you end up at Virginia State? Did they find you? I had a friend here at Virginia State who was already playing, uh, and he, him and I had played together in high school. He was a high school, he was a high school star also up here, and he said, he said, "No, send your tape down." And I sent it down, and the coach was like, "I think we're going to need to have you come down." 
and uh, at least try out. And I came down, I tried out, they offered me a scholarship, you know, right then and there. And I had never been to, Virginia State is a historically black school. So I'm coming from up north. I don't know anything about any of this. But I came down here and my family's from Virginia. My grandmother's from Newport News. I still have cousins there. And we're from the South. We're from like Clinton, North Carolina is where the majority of the family is. So I went down here and I had a ball. It was a new experience. And uh, I felt like uh, I was a star on campus. You know, I tell folks, if you get a chance to play any kind of, you know, uh, athletic sports in college, man, you got to play it because you're only a god once. <laughs> You know, if you go to the pros, all we see here is the result. You don't see all the business and the the BS that goes on behind the scenes. And very few of those are gods, you know, that can name name that tune. But if in college, so... So you were the man of of Virginia State. I I have to ask, did you get timed in the 100 or the 40? Uh, yeah, I was a two. I was more of a two hundred man. In the forty, I was at that time. I had run uh, probably a four four nine four five. I was a probably was like a four five kind of guy, um, but I did get timed at like four four nine, which is really four point five. So I was really fast, and I think I was in a hundred. Uh, I want to say maybe like a 10-7, but the 200, which is my race, I was 21-5, that, that was That was my race. And a few times, you know, I watched the Olympics. I was like, damn, if I would have ran the Olympics, I might have been able to at least been on the Olympic squad. But, you know, that it's all about opportunity and when it happens and consistency. But I was really, a, I was a 200-meter Man, for some reason, my start was great. Around 100, form wasn't as good. And then I could recover uh, because I was pretty strong in, in the 200. So, yeah, it's, uh, your top speed, if you could maintain it, you you would. Yeah, if you, I, it's a weird thing, right? You, you have a great start, you have a great finish, but the middle's kind of wonky. Yeah, I never could get the form right to to do it but i had strength which propelled me and i had enough speed for the 200 i didn't like the 400 at all I, that, that's a man's race i kudos to anybody you know back then we used to stride it out now it's a full 400 meter sprint and i have no lungs left after that doc they, they could keep that so who was your hey, Sherrod, who was your quarterback who was your quarterback at virginia state I want to say it's Kyle Henry. Oh, you go, you're taking me back a little. I want to say it was Kyle Henry. Yeah, it's back in the 80s. Okay. Kevin, why uh, do you ask that? I was just wondering if it was somebody that I remember. I I, I know Union was uh, I mean, you obviously Union's your main oh, that was our that was um, our competition right there. Yeah, right. I mean, and, Union and I knew State, yeah, Norfolk, Hampton. I mean, this is CIAA. Yeah, that that that's heavy stuff back then. Absolutely. Um, yes, it was. 
Yeah, a lot of local guys, you know, and that was the other thing. I'm, I was I was an outsider. I didn't play high school ball down here on Friday nights. So they were like this Yankee coming in from up north. You know, they don't even play football year round. You know, I mean, Long Island's not a football hotspot. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've had some. We had the Tice brothers. I played high school with Boomer Esiason. He played at East Islip when I was at uh, Bayshore. You know, we we've had our a few, but not to the degree that some of these other states have. So, yeah, F Florida, Texas, and I would say the uh, Tidewater part of Virginia is right up there. Yeah, yeah, and Ohio. Back then, Ohio, the, the state of Ohio, was killing them. Yeah, yeah. Um, All right. So, so what year in school were you when the Navy said you've got to join now? I was. Uh, Junior, sophomore, junior, yeah. And I mean, that seems unreal to me. I don't know why they wouldn't let you finish school. Well, because I had applied for and my and my my what do they call it? The the ASFAB. All oh, right, I had to think of the name because I don't even know if they do the ASFAB anymore. They still do it. They still oh. do it. <laughs> I had scored exceptionally high on the ASFAB and at that time they needed a skill set that I had um, and I could still finish college. I think that that was, you know, the key. I could still, because I was only stationed in Norfolk. So. Yeah, so but wait a minute. You were traveling back and forth to finish school? Well, Virginia State at that point had cooperative program because it was an agri-college. Mm. So if you were in the sciences, um, there were times when you would be out of, out of state, uh, you know, in the Midwest, if you were studying agriculture and still being able to um, use that as some of your continuing studies uh, to finish to complete your BS because it was a biology school, but it was really an agrobiology. I just like the physics and the biology portion of that. And a lot of what I had done, I had done before my junior year. I had taken I like an overload um, my freshman, my second half of my freshman year and my sophomore year, I just loaded up. Uh, and so I didn't expect anything to happen, but it was like, I think the summer of my junior year, the spring of my junior year. Um, so it wasn't as if I needed a tremendous amount of credits to graduate. So I was able to kind of take what I needed, finish some, you know, classes, and then I would be done. Um, and what happened is I went into the Navy as as an enlisted person, um, I had the option of going in as an officer because I had actually I had enough credits uh, to complete a a degree. Um, it may not have been specifically in biology, but I had enough to complete the degree, and that was the the turning. But I went in as an enlisted person, and I did that for about a year. And my reason behind that was I, I didn't want to get anybody killed mm. because 
I had a college degree. I didn't know the first thing about the Navy, <laughs> you know, and just because I went to school, you know, I'm going to tell the chief warrant officer who's got, you know, at least five hash marks, <laughs> you know, what to do. Yeah, it's it's a funny thing, right? You you end up taking these kids at, at age of 21, 22, 23, putting them in charge of people that have been doing it a lot longer than they have. Uh, and the, the smart young officers listen to the senior guys, right? The ones that are trying to make up for some deficiencies from their high school and middle school years, they end up acting like they're, they're the man or the woman, and uh, they end up being put in their place pretty quickly. Yeah, so I, I didn't. I didn't want that. I wanted to be. I wanted to earn the respect. I believe respect is earned, not just given because I got a piece of paper. That, quite frankly, I don't really think it meant a whole lot in the military. I mean, I. I don't. You know. Yeah, it shows completion. Eh, I could think of some other things too, but I did that for a year, and then I went to OCS, which was in Pensacola, Officer Candidate School. Now that. That's real. <laughs> you know, that's military. That gives you what the four years of college can't give you. And when you go from enlisted to OCS, there's a different level of respect, even from warrant officers, from master chiefs, from enlisted personnel all the way up. Because you did it, you know, I guess what they call the hard way. Um but I was a hard head, and my grandma always said a hard head makes a soft tail. Uh, <laughs> uh, so I ended up that, you know, there was no turning back uh, from that. I think it was the ass, my ass fabs were really, you know, off the chart um, for some particular areas of expertise uh, that they needed at the time, which is why I was able to do it. Plus, if, when you put together my transcript from college, it wasn't as if I was a junior who would have been in danger of not graduating had I not done my senior year. So, um, so, so you're one year as an enlisted uh, sailor. What was your specialty in that year? I was an ocean systems technician. To, uh, for, the, for the layman or for the Army guy uh, on this? So think of a sonar tech on a ship that listens for submarines. Okay. I did that on land. Uh, that rate never went to sea. And the A school was so difficult I, that I had a 98.5 average and I was still number 10 in a class of 15. <laughs> but it was land-based? Yeah. See, we didn't go to bases. We we were on facility, top secret facilities. Okay. And so I was stationed in Damn Neck, is where I where my first station was. Uh, and then I went out to Centerville Beach, California. Uh, it's kind of a base like Camp Perry, which we call the farm. Yeah, yeah. I, I, yeah, I, I'm familiar with all these places. Yeah. Right. <laughs> you know, civilian clothes, no, you know, no uniforms. Uh, you come in kind of like this a little. Um, so you you were doing that from the jump. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. And, and then when you uh, went through OCS, were you doing the same sort of work? Yeah. Okay. AS with the anti-submarine warfare. Huh. 
<laughs> now I understand why you can't really talk about it. <laughs> yeah. So, um, is that? Did you enjoy the work? Yeah, because I could tell from a line, and it was so funny because I remember when they first told me about it. I was like, "You guys are looking at these lines. What, what, what's going on with this?" And after I finished A school, I could tell you the line, what ship, what sub it was, how fast, what was going on on the sub. Like, you know, like, like, like whether they, they were listening to music kind of thing? Yeah, I mean, from a line. So the sonar techs, they listen, you know, physically. But we looked at, uh, and we were analysts. We were analyzing that sound that they would hear. And you enjoyed it. Yeah, it was, uh, you know why? Because it was a challenge to find them. Because uh, back then, you know, quiet was the whole key, which it still is now. But, I mean, to manage to find one. Oh, man. And, you know, and the rest of the world really didn't know what an ocean systems technician was. And when I tell people, they're like, yeah, we do what, you know, we guard the United States, you know, in, in various other areas, too. You guys don't even know what's out there. And we, we see it all, you know. And Were, you, were so, you ever afloat or were you always land-based? I was always land-based. Um, That's wild to me. Yeah, I don't know what the inside of a ship, I mean, I know what it looks like. But that rate didn't go to sea. And you know something? It was over 50% women. Uh, interesting. Yeah. Because it didn't go to sea. And that was well, you know, that was well before now everybody goes to sea. Yeah, back back in the day, they were worried about commingling and that kind of stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So very, very different. In fact, this the rate doesn't exist anymore today. I I thought I knew a lot of stuff about the military. I didn't realize we had uh, land-based guys doing what you were doing. That's, yeah. That's wild to me. And you did it for 11 years. Oh, yeah. And so a lot of guys get to year nine, years 9, 10, and 11, and like, well, I'm halfway there. I might as well do the full 20. What, what, what was your rationale? It was never going to be um, something – I, it wasn't something that I aspired to be, but I wanted to be my own person. Um, and in the military, you're kind of not. I mean, I don't have a problem with authority. I have a problem with people who abuse authority. Mm. <laughs> I, I, I have the same problem, Gerard. <laughs> so... I'm like, yeah, this is probably not going to work in the long haul for me. Um, I also did some, you know, I volunteered while I was in Damn Neck uh, for Buds. So I, I, I've done some other things also. Um, and just the weight of, of everything and kind of thinking about you know, what I wanted to do with my life. Um, the Navy, it, it didn't fit. And I, I'm pretty strong 
willed when it comes to, you know, what I want my life to be like. And I'll tell anybody, I tell kids now, when you go in, you make sure um, that you tell them what you, that you score high enough that you can dictate what it is that you want. Because if you cannot, you will spend four years in the service, come out and have, and have more, less than what you had when you went in. And don't believe the hype that every employer is gonna be clamoring to get their hands on you. Because <laughs> like I said, I was a lieutenant, okay? There has been, I have not had one job who has hired me because I was a lieutenant in the Navy of all, you know, when you talk about officers, I mean, very few are more coveted than a Navy officer. It means nothing. <laughs> yeah, it does. It depends on the the employer, but I, in general, I agree with that sentiment. Yeah, nobody said, "Hey, Paul, thanks for your service in the Army. We'd love to hire you." Nobody's ever said that to me. Right, but that's what they tell you when you when you enter. You know, recruiters will say all kinds of stuff. Yeah, so uh, I was strong enough and. I had enough going for me, you know, the military wasn't, it wasn't because the judge said, <laughs> you, need, you need to go into the military. That's, which... one, that's one way you get in. <laughs> so, so, Sarah, uh, yeah. I, I, I had some, uh, I had some technical difficulties, so I might've missed this, but were, were the SEALs ever uh, a thought? I know you mentioned earlier that there's some things that you did that you can't talk about. Um, can you elaborate on that a little bit? I mean, this a little. Just, just a tiny bit. So <laughs> back then it was JSOC. And now it's 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 a bunch of other things. But yeah, I, I, I did volunteer um, in Damn Neck uh, for the Buds. I did pass the qualifications. I ended up going to Coronado. Um, part of a delivery team um, and you know that was part of the extra weight after you know 11 years um, it's very different now um, we had to carry both our MOS's which mine was an ocean systems technician and the additional workload um, you don't you don't have to do that now you you can actually go into i think any of the military and go directly in i'll just speak for the navy i know that they changed it you can go directly into buds you don't have to have there's not it's a separate rate where before it was not a rate um it was like a, and, a special a specialty effectively yeah it was a specialty right and you still had it you still had to matriculate in your original mos you couldn't give you you didn't give that up um so it, it was it was it was tough and i think that's probably some of the drivers as to why it was changed to where you could just focus on that because think about it you're an operator this couple of months but you have an MOS that you still need to, to maintain and depending upon what that MOS, sometimes it was very difficult. There were some MOSs that really didn't afford you the latitude 
to um, jump into any of the specialty, you know, areas, uh, you know, the teams just being, you know, one of them. Um, so therefore you might have to change your rate. So if you changed your rate to like a boatsman or just a seaman, suppose you fell out of buds, which is a, it, it, that's a reality, <laughs> not a possibility. It's a reality. Then what? You've given up your MOS to try out for something that if you make it, it's great. But if you don't, which is the reality is you might not, then you fall back to earth with, with, with nothing and have to start all over again. And think about the mental anguish that you've carried just because you've, I mean, for the lack of better word, you failed. I mean, you, I'll be honest with you. You, you don't fail, <laughs> you know, right, but you feel you that just way. can't do it. I don't right. use the word fail. I mean, because to be selected, to go through hell, if, if, if you made it two months, you've never done that much work in your entire life. <laughs> okay. That okay. So fail, I, I really don't look at it that way. So, right. uh, and it was just, it was, it was, uh, it was very different back then in, in a lot of ways. Um, so that's about as far as I can go with that. But again, all of that kind of shaped me. Yeah. Um, yeah. I mean, so, so you, you were mentioning when you were in elementary school uh, on Long Island, you, you were the only black kid in that school. Uh, Bud's probably felt similar. Oh, without a doubt. Uh, <laughs> and again, that you know, this whole thing was kind of a setup for me my whole life. You know, being able to overcome—I wouldn't say the odds, but the environment. You know, that—that's what I call it: the environment. Being able to adapt um, to the environment, um, knowing. You know, knowing my lane, but also just being, you know, confident in my ability uh, to get the to get anything done. Now, I was a knucklehead. I mean, if you said jump, I said if you said, you know, let's get it, we was gonna get it in. I mean, I didn't take tea for the fever. <laughs> uh, that was kind of, you know, but I also knew when to kind of use my head. I mean, there was a few times in the Navy where I probably should have used my head instead of my tempo. So some of those also, you know, led me to like, you know what, this might not end well. <laughs> Let me get out while like, the getting is good because that's just, it's it's not going to be me for long. So, so you ha you have, it sounds like mostly fond memories of the Navy, but not perfectly, not not a perfect yeah. experience. Not a perfect experience, but you know something, I think it shaped me. Uh, it prepared me for, you know, for the real world. Many of those experiences, I take with me the lessons from those experiences uh, into banking. Uh, so, you know, I'm in the Navy, I'm stationed in California. I'm about to get out, I need a job. Uh, 
I worked in television for a second. I did advertising sales, you know, because what was I going to do in Cal Eureka, California? I don't know if you know where that's at, but maybe 100 miles, 200 from the Oregon border. You know, it's Northern California. It's God's country, man. <laughs> not not <laughs> you know, a lot up there north of San Fran, right? Yeah, it, 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 Humboldt County, you know, where they grow the Humboldt gold. That, that's yeah, oh, where yeah. I was. Yeah, so <laughs> not a lot to do up there, not a lot of money to be made. Uh, so I did that till I got out and I stayed. I, yeah, because what happened was I, I was then assigned to shore duty. So I had days off and I think because I had some days off during the week because of my hours, I was able to do more of a sales type of position where I could sell ad space. It wasn't a nine to five where I was punching a clock and all of that. And, you know, it afforded me some money and kind of get my mind right to what I wanted to, to do. You know, that I want to see if I could use my biology degree, which was losing its lackluster. I mean, I did use my physics and biology in the military. That was a great thing. Um, and then I got out, I got stayed in California maybe two or three years after that. And then I came back home and then a friend of mine uh, had asked me what I mind working for uh, a, a government uh, agency. Well, you know, a company that supported government agencies in answering requests for quotes and requests for um, RFPs and RFQs for for the defense industry for mil-spec hardware. For those of us that are not familiar, mil-spec hardware is any hardware that's used in the military, screws, bolts, anything. So that all has regulations tied behind it. And I worked for a company that lobbied in DC and would get all of that information and then sell and then provide it to uh, defense contractors, Grumman, Sikorsky, all, all of the big boys and some of the smaller sm mom and pops and give them an opportunity to, uh, to bid on those. So I worked that for a while and I learned that, that hardware. And then my same friend, he said, you know, listen, you know, HUD has an opportunity if, if you're interested in learning, you know, housing regulations. And I was like, housing regulations? I figured, well, you know what? I can read. I've learned defense regulations on little mil-spec hardware. Hell, let me let me take a shot. And that is how I ended up in banking. I worked for the department, uh, HUD, and on a temporary seasonal examination, which turned into a position at the Dime Savings Bank uh, of New York. And that's kind of where the compliance was launched for me, where I, I was able to really utilize, I would say, all those skills that I've ever learned, paying attention to detail, um, to not to reading and applying, to adapting, uh, to if you fail, fail fast. Uh, just many of those things, you know, when I think about how I folded my skivvies every day in the military, you know, in my in my in my undershirts, which I still fold the same way today, <laughs> you know, 
it's there's a method and it, it works. And uh, I became really good at it. Uh, and I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it more than I enjoyed mm, probably the science. Uh, yeah, probably more than I did the science. But I ended up tutoring also on the side. So I was still able to give back, you know, with my physics degree um, back to the community. So I would, you know, I would tutor high school kids uh, in science and things of that nature when I had the time. But kind of all of that is what kind of launched me, you know, in, in, into compliance. And so we fast forward a couple of years, you know, about 25 years. Um, and I catch, you know, 2020 comes around. Hold on, hold on. Before we go to 2020, Sherrod, you said you're on the Bills practice squad. Right. When was, when, when was that? Because I'm, I'm having trouble figuring out when you fit that in. So there was a period before when I got out, before the delayed entry actually was executed. So the delayed entry, the way that it worked then, you had, once you were called up, you had a year to actually get all of your personal things together, so to speak. And at that time, so I, I did that, but I said, you know what, you know, let me, let me try out just because was it Napoleon Bonaparte? There was a, there was somebody who got an exemption. Yeah, it was Napoleon Bonaparte. Was yes. Yeah. Okay. And you could also get an exemption if you were going to play sports in the military. A lot of folks don't know that. I mean, this is not the academy. Like, like the military, the army, the Marines, they all have like, sports sports that are not part of the academy that if you qualify for like any of those teams there's some exemptions that you can get so i figured you know what let me see if i could get one um and i loved football i didn't want to give up on it i mean i couldn't help that you know they called me but they gave me a year to get my lungs together so i tried out and lo and behold, the practice squad. Um, but nevertheless, you know, it. I was a practice dummy, um, and I think had I been able to land on a team, I would have still had to serve. No, it's not. This is not okay. Uh, you don't have to do your time. I had signed a contract, as you said. <laughs> right. um, it would have just been delayed, you know, maybe another two or three years. Um, I think that that's kind of the way that it works. You still have to give your service uh, at that time. So I was able to, to kind of do that. And it, again, it gave me kind of time to think about what it was that I really wanted. And since I wasn't going to, um, it wasn't going to, I wasn't, it wasn't going to happen. I wasn't going to Canada to play ball. Cause I mean, a lot of folks did that too. I mean, yeah. and that probably would have been the place for me to go because they threw the ball up there, but I wasn't trying to cold. It was of no interest. 
uh, to me at all. Canada, Calgary, I, I don't care whether they play in the Dome or not. Uh, just wasn't really, you know, feeling that. Yeah, you, ha you have to make decisions. And people don't really realize, you know, athletes, today's athletes not like the athlete that I grew up with. We There wasn't no millions <laughs> being thrown at you. We didn't have ESPN and, you know, TikTok to show all everything, you know. It was opportunity and timing. Like the year that I went there, they weren't drafting any small running backs. The next year, David Meggett comes out of Townsend and the Giants pick him up. And he's, you know, God's gift to the world. And I'm like, how the hell does this happen? Timing and opportunity. Wrong place, wrong time. Yeah. Um, Life's funny that way. All right, let's let's go to 2020. So then 2020 happens. Um, and you know, I had thought that COVID was was rampant. And I had thought to myself, this could be it, yo. You know, it's gonna be the end of the world. Folks are playing around, but my science background, I have my spidey senses thinking like this is not an ordinary virus. Um, so I, I went to a conference in uh, Boston for the company. And it was, I would say, the end of February, the beginning of March. But I had also went to New York early, uh, first of March also, where, you know, I think COVID was there. But I went to a conference and I, I came back and I was on a call when I got back at the job. And uh, I remember, you know, taking control of the call and letting everybody know that, you know, we were going to need to, have have another call, but we were going to need to postpone it a week, which is something that I normally never do because I said I just wasn't feeling good. Um, so that was the last time I spoke to my colleagues for like probably a year. I, I had no clue. Uh, so I went home and my wife and I, we had just moved here. We had, you know, at my, my daughter, uh, for five years old, four or five years old at the time, we have no family here. And I, I had gotten the temperature. Now, I'm not one to get sick. And usually when I get sick, I can beat it. Uh, but I had 105 fever Ooh. for like four to five days. My wife couldn't break it. Um, I was going through pajamas. We were doing the cold showers everything. I couldn't break it. The Tylenol wasn't working. I went to my doctor and she said, I don't care what they say, you have it. But I didn't have any of, at that time, those symptoms, which was the shortness of breath. That was like key symptom. Um, so she called Bond Secure Hospital and she said, no, you, you, you guys are going to need to take him. He has it. And they were like, they did a chest x-ray which came back inconclusive. So they sent me back home. And I remember my wife saying, I'm going to go to the store and I'm, I'm going to get some more medicine for you, you know, to see if she can break this temperature. And when she came back, I told her, I said, you know, I have a cough now. And it's because of the cough I can't catch my breath. Not that I'm having trouble catching it at all, but the cough was just, 
it was chronic. I just couldn't stop. And I said, I think I need to go back to the hospital. And she said, are you sure? I said, yeah, I don't want to play the mano-a-mano like I normally do. Uh, and so, you know, I told her, I said, listen, these are all the bills. This is my life insurance policy. I never really thought for a second that I wasn't coming back. Some just told me that because she was the only one here and I, we, were, we had no family, so nobody would know anything. Um, so she took me to the hospital. I think my, I think was my daughter with me that night because we had no babysitter and at COVID was full blast at that point. So nobody was talking to anybody. So there wasn't, yeah, my daughter had to be in the car with me. Uh, and I remember my wife taking me to Bond Secure and I remember it was, I think it was a cold rainy night. Uh, and I'm getting out of the car and she looks at me cause she couldn't get out the car to go to the tent, because at that point they had tents outside of Bond Secure. And she looked at me and said, you better not. And that was the last words I heard from her for the next, uh, for 21 days. Mm. Uh, mm. They brought me in, they took my uh, oxygen and said that it was really low. And then they brought me into the hospital and they told me they, if they can't get my O2 back up, they were going to have to intubate me. And I said, intubate me? But does that mean that? I mean, you know, I'm going to be, I was like, what? That was the last thing I remembered. So my wife. So they intubate you when, like, they're performing surgery and they need you to be perfectly still. That's that's one one time that they intubate you but I, this is what late march mid to late yeah, march march 20 Mar yeah about march 17th yeah so right right when the world realized we've got a massive problem that like there were governments saying we have a massive issue right you know, and, at the very very beginning for the u.s yeah and, and and they were intubating and, and putting ventilators in everybody and most of those people didn't make Stop. it right so you they're telling me that i'm like so that was the last thing I remember them telling me. And then when I spoke to my wife, she said, yeah, because within 45 minutes of me dropping you off, they called me and told me that that's what they were gonna do. They didn't ask me. <laughs> they told me that if they didn't do it, you weren't gonna make it. Uh, so they intubated me and I didn't know until after I woke up, the doctor said, you were very difficult to intubate your body rejected everything we were doing to try to put you in this coma. We needed to put you in a coma, uh, but your body fought. And I explained to him, I said, well, that's probably as a result of my CT training in the military. I mean, you just never forget that and the body just reacts. Uh, so they said they really had to use a lot of drugs to get me in that coma. And you remember, they were learning. They they didn't know a whole lot of anything. Um, and they said, you know, they, they got me under, but the temperature, I was still, I still had a temperature. They could not break this temperature. Um, and so for a couple of days, they were trying to, put a breathing tube, put a feeding tube 
Um, and then they said, uh, I aspirated. They had turned me over to the prone position because that was kind of the new position that they were hearing about. Um, and they said when they did that, my breathing tube fell out. And they said, normally that's a six second and it's over. She said, Joyce was out for a minute. We couldn't get it back in. And once we got it back in, that's when you aspirated. And we were like, we had just finished getting all the, all the fluid off of your lungs. And then you threw up again inside. Um, but luckily a lot of fluid didn't enter your lung cavity. But what did happen is because I was on the ventilator, my kidneys shut down. Uh, and then my pancreas began um, to, I guess, be challenged uh, because let's be real, the ventilator is just for breathing. It doesn't really support the other bodily functions. Um, so things were beginning to break down. And my wife told me, you know, they called her every day uh, to give her an update. And some days there were no updates. And now, mind you, my wife was working, taking care of a five-year-old with no help in a neighborhood that we didn't, again, we just didn't know anybody. She still to this day doesn't know how <clears throat> she was able to do that. It was like a blur. Um, but for a minute there, she says, you know, after day four, we were worried. But she said, after day seven, your doctor was worried because nobody had survived the ventilator here in Richmond after three days. And here we are seven days and I'm still fighting. Um, I'm trying not to get emotional because it was all I could think of while I was under. I just had so many I th listen, I thought I was in another, I thought I was in um, Zimbabwe. You know, I thought I saw the monkeys. I thought I thought I was in the middle of war. I was like, my cousin's in a, you know, is a commander in the army. Somebody get her here. My son, you know, uh, was, was in the army. Get him here. Uh, these drugs was no joke. <laughs> uh, mm -hmm. But I, I fought through and on day 14, um, I woke up and I woke up to the doctor or the nurse holding my hand uh, saying, do I know where I was? And I didn't know where I was. I didn't know what year it was. I didn't know who the president was. I didn't, you know, I had no idea what I had just went through. I just remembered when I woke up and I opened my eyes and I moved them from side to side. I saw these machines. I saw all these tubes. I'm like, I think every hole that I had had a tube in it. Yeah. I felt like a fish. I was like, y'all got me like, like a fish. I got gills now too. Um, I had these two things hanging out of my neck that I had no clue of what they were. And then the man walked in the room with this machine and I looked at him. I said, what are you doing here? He's like, I'm giving you dialysis. I said, dialysis? I've never been on dialysis. 
And my whole world just went before me. I'm like, wait a minute. I just bought this brand new house. A wife. I got a five-year-old. And you're telling me that I'm going to be on dialysis? And I had watched it deteriorate my father. So I knew, you know, what it was. Um, and at that point, I was like, whoa. I said, somebody call my doctor. I have my own doctor. I have my own nephrologist. I, you know, I have specialists that I deal with. Somebody needs to tell me something. Um, and they said, no, they said, Mr. Wilkerson, you were very sick. Like your kidneys, it attacked your kidneys. It, it shut them down. And we, there was nothing we could do. We just were waiting, but your heart was strong. And we could feel you fighting, but there wasn't anything we could do. And when you opened up your eyes, it was miraculous to them. They said they called in the doctors. And I think after day two, when I was, I, you know, I came off the ventilator, they weaned me off the ventilator like in three or four days. Because of what, yeah, I came to and I still was on the ventilator. But they weaned me off and then monitored me for another two days. And when they, all my signs, vitals were good, they had nicknamed me the one. Because up until then, no one had survived. And here I am, 14 days, I wake up and I'm, I'm surviving. Not out of the woods, because mind you, I woke up, I still had COVID. <laughs> you know? Wow. Well, Sherrod, I mean, they, they learned, I guess, fairly quickly after that, um, I guess, as you got into April and May, that the ventilators were not the way to go. And yeah, I mean, it, the doctors were certainly not trying to do any harm, but the ventilators uh, heavily contributed to a lot of people not surviving. I imagine before you uh, got COVID, you were in pretty good shape. Yeah, I was. I mean... I couldn't run, you know, the 400, but I, I, I could, I was doing a hundred pushups a day. I think I won the pushup challenge twice at, at you, Citizens. You remember did. that? Yes. Uh, and mind you, <laughs> right. I'm, I'm, I'll be 60 in September. Most people will be like, what? I'm like, I won that. I won that, uh, that contest at like 55. Mm -hmm. So, I was still in really good shape for my for my age. I think that really contributed a lot to the ability for me to recover. I think the mental fortitude that I gained in the military also played a large part of that. I think that my my religious fundamental background, you know, the that you know my belief in god i that played all of those played an enormous part in in my recovery because even when i recovered and i was still in the hospital i still had the covid they were talking about putting me in a, a in a home a nursing home and i'm like oh i'm surely going to die if i go there <laughs> i'm like no that's for somebody who can't that was just not going to be me. 
But when they told me I had to walk, I got out of the bed thinking I could walk. And I, to my surprise, I couldn't. I was like, oh, atrophy had really set in. <laughs> you know, 21 days under, I lost 30 pounds. But I was like, no, you're not sending me to one of these homes where I know they got COVID still running around. It, you're going to die. So after they told me that, you know, I needed this walker, every night when they left in between their rounds, I would secret, I would work out. So the floor had black and white cubes, regular hospital floor. I would use my martial art katas and I would work out every night. First, it was just getting to the end of the bed. <laughs> then it was getting to the other corner of the bed. Then it was getting all the way to the other side of the bed. Then it was getting from the bed to the bathroom and back. And I, I would do this every night and I did it every night for a week. They came back in with their physical therapist because they said, you know, you couldn't walk and we wanted to give you some time. Physical therapist came in after five days after seeing me the first day and asked me, was I ready for my physical therapy? And I said to her, are you ready for your physical therapy? And she laughed. She said, okay, let's go. So I got out of bed slowly and I stood up and she looked at me and then I began to walk. And I remember when I first started to walk, I thought of the song, the Christmas song, put one foot in front in of the other, <laughs> you know, those type yeah. of things. And she was astonished. She was like, I can't believe this. Five days ago, you needed <laughs> the, the, the um, walker just to walk to the, to stand up, to walk to the end of the bed. So then she says, here's a glove. I'm going to throw it on the floor. I want you to go and pick it up. I bent down on one knee, picked it up, stood back up. She immediately called the doctors, not one doctor, but two doctors to come into the room to examine what she just saw and to get my vitals. Because they said, it's one thing to survive the ventilator for as long as you did. It's another thing for you to recover in five days after being prone for 14. So I went back to bed and every night, every day, different nurses would just pop in and they'd say, we just want to see who the one was. Because for them, it was a victory. They were so tired of losing patients that seeing me survive and not just survive, but thrive, gave them hope. And I still didn't really understand the magnitude of what was going on because my wife had taken my cell phone. They had, in the hospital, you know, they got the television. Man, I told them, y'all gotta turn this television off because this television has this relaxation channel. It says, close your eyes and think that you're in a field of dreams and what y'all trying to kill me 
<laughs> I ain't trying to go to hell. That's not helping you. Yeah. Hey, so <laughs> just, how do you feel now? Do you do you feel like you've completely recovered? Oh yeah. Uh, if to see me, you would never even have thought that I ever had it. I was riding my bike. See, that was March. I was riding my bike by June. I came home April. I have upstairs and downstairs. I stayed downstairs first and, you know, they would come over, nurses, take my blood. I, again, I still had COVID. I was home and now we're 30 days into this and I still got COVID. You would have thought that I, but because I had it so bad, it was, it just wouldn't leave. But it yeah. didn't affect me. I didn't have the shortness of breath. I, you know, I did what they told me to do with the breathing exercises. Um, I use my steps uh, as workout tools. Um, and when I realized that I could make it to the bathroom from the living room couch to the refrigerator and back before my wife came back downstairs, <laughs> I knew I was back and I was back in action. That's awesome. <laughs> and uh, uh, it was just a miraculous uh, recovery. Uh, the hospital called me. I, I've done two interviews. I did one on news. I think it was News 12. I've been featured in the Richmond Magazine three times. I'm on the Bond Secure website um, on their blog uh, for for uh, just giving folks inspiration uh, through through the COVID. I remember when I left the hospital, um, while, while I was in, they gave me this little bear. And what they did is they allowed my wife and my daughter to, rec to record their voices and tell me they love me. And I remember squeezing that bear many nights just to hear their voice because they couldn't see me, they couldn't talk to me until I had maybe six days out of of the host of, of uh, the intensive care. But the nurses were just unbelievable. And the day that I left, the entire intensive care wing lined the hall. No, that's cool. Uh, and as they rolled me out, you could see them crying. Um, and as I got to the end, I, I, I turned around and I stood up in my wheelchair and I gave them one of those Independence Day speeches. I told them, you know, I have been to war. I said, and you guys are the new front line. We're not fighting with tanks, <laughs> airplanes, any of that. You are the new front line. You're going to fail, but you're going to fail fast. You learn quickly, adapt. You can beat this, but it is going to take a discipline and it's going to take all that you thought you didn't have to win this. And they gave, it was a standing ovation. Um, and they wheeled me out. My wife came and, and got me and took me home and then, you know, they called me back, you know, four months later, the doctors, all of the ones who actually took care of me, met me at the hospital. And we did a, a news cast from the hospital and 
that's when I learned, you know, a lot of the new the stuff I didn't know that I was telling you about, about my kidneys and everything. And then one of the nurses who spoke to my wife every day, she said, there's one thing that you didn't know you said, but one day when you had woken up and you had realized you had gotten it all back, you screamed out, your boy is back. <laughs> and we all wanted to get a shirt made. <laughs> uh, so it was, it was a feel good story. And when I tell you, when I got back home and I looked on Facebook, there were so many posts about me from people that I didn't even know who, when they heard my wife had mentioned, you know, put it out there that I had woken up the hope because that's the one thing I think was fading fast. When, when, when you have over a thousand people a day dying, hope is lost. And in our community, we were decimated. And for me to survive, it gave them hope. And that's what they needed. And I often say, me going through this wasn't for me necessarily but it was for those of us who were going through it and were losing so many people that they had lost hope. Um, and I was one in a thousand stories like this that was able to, to make it through and be that beacon you know, of hope. But when I looked at Facebook, I tell you something, it was eerie because I lived my funeral. Mm. Yeah. You know, it, when I look at all the comments, you never see this because you die. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. <laughs> hey, I, I can tell you, 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 your story, and, and I was lucky enough because I worked with you to actually hear about it, was able to follow it, went from potential tragedy to enormous positive hope, just like you just said, because in the beginning, none of us knew what was going on. Everybody's scrambling around. They're sending everybody home. Everybody, don't want, no one wants to go out their house. People are dying, like you said, thousands per day. And then someone that you know goes through what you went through and then came out on the other side. Amazing. Now, I, so that leads me to a question, actually. So how has your perspective on life either changed or how has it? I mean, how do you because I can only imagine you're walking on cloud nine pretty much every day at this point. So it's something as simple as this. You know, we get up at night and we go to the bathroom. When I get up and go to the bathroom at night, I say, thank you, God. And I don't say it just to say it right because it was a time when i couldn't do it it it's that it's that simple because it's that quick that you might not be here you know i roll over i look at my daughter my daughter might do something and my wife will tell me you still need to talk to somebody because i'll just start crying i said because this almost wasn't reality i mean yeah. I just took her to the father-daughter dance in February. And in March, she almost lost me. And so now 
Everything is different. I went out, bought a Range Rover, bought a boat. I'm not waiting. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> I'm like, awesome. I'm not waiting till I retire because if anything this has taught me, you know, we always say tomorrow is not promised. We love to say that word. <laughs> Listen, you, you don't you mean it. You, right. You don't know it until for real, for real. And you better hope to God that you can make it to tomorrow. Because a lot of folks wanted to and didn't. So my perspective has absolutely it's different. My family life, I you know, I never took it for granted, but I definitely don't take it for granted now. This work balance. It's serious. Citizens was excellent to me. When I tell you, they call my wife every week. I mean, Ransom, Rose, everybody was just um, over and above. And Citizens took care of me. They told me I didn't have to come back for a year. I could have stayed. I, I only stayed till June because I, I found myself doing my wife's work. And I was like, okay, I need to get back to work. And I mean, I'm working from home. I need to get back to work. My brain was was right. So, um, but yeah, that's the perspective that I I live with now. And I really, you know, when I speak to people about it, I, I want them to really understand just how precious every second is. And don't take your health for granted at all. Because when you don't have it, it's a different ball game. And I was lucky, I was blessed. I was able to get it back. Some folks recovered, but we're not, but we're left with lingering effects. A lot of people um, to where they, they can't work again. Uh, it affects everything. And that wasn't my case. Um, and I just, you know, I really encourage people, take care of yourself. I don't care how old you are, Go to the doctor. If you feel something is wrong, challenge the doctor. They don't know it all. You know your body. You know, write down things. If this, you know, you get a headache and it's not something that you get, write it down the day, the time. Because what happens is it may not happen for another month or so. And you may get to the doctor and you know how they always ask you, how you feel? Feeling good. Any yeah. symptoms, anything I should know about? We all say the same thing. Nothing. But if we write it down, then we can say, you know, this happened. And if it's been your doctor, like my doctor, she saved my life. She is incredible. What's your doctor's name, Sharad? Dr. Habib, Alicia Habib, um, because she had been my doctor for seven years. <clears throat> so she knew me and she said, you know, I will call the hospital, the chief administrator <clears throat> and tell them. She did that. She was like, no. And even when I go to her office now, they, they still, they smile and they're like, the miracle. That's so, Shirai, that's an incredible story. And I, I really appreciate you joining us. We got two more things we're going to cover before uh, we end this particular episode. Kevin has a question that he asked uh, towards the end. That's It's impossible to segue from the story you just told to Kevin's question. But Kevin, go ahead and ask your question. It is impossible to segue, but let's just say this, say, um, 
a, a late night talk show host heard this story and said, you know what? I want Sherrod Wilkerson to do my job tonight. That There's my segue. So tonight you are the owner of the, of the talk show, the tonight show, whatever show it is, you get to pick a male guest, a female guest, a musical act and a comedian. And this could be people that are dead or alive. Um, people you've always wanted to meet people, you know, it could be anyone. You could be going for ratings. Hey, I'm going to have the greatest show ever, or it just could be about you and what you like. Um, but a male guest, female guest, musical group and comedian. Okay. So the comedian would probably be Bernie Mac. Oh, I love Bernie Mac. I love Bernie Mac. I wish he was still with us. <laughs> yeah, the comedian would be Bernie Mac. A female host. This is a guest. This is whoever you want to interview. Uh I can't think of her name right now, but she played in Terminate. Not she didn't play in Terminate. She played in Aliens Three, and she also played in Love and Basketball. I cannot think of her name right now. Where's my phone? Kevin's going to the Google machine. Sherrod, he'll he'll look it up. Yeah. Okay. Um. Uh. Yeah, she's the lead character in Love and Basketball. What about music group? Uh, Earth, Wind, and Fire. <laughs> Earth, Wind, and Fire is, is generational, man. I, I was talking to some uh, folks in my family who I, I see once or twice a year, and Earth, Wind, and Fire came on, and they knew exactly who it was, and they were like 15, 16 years old. It was awesome. Yeah. Uh, so who else? Who am I missing? Male and and female, but Kevin's looking up. He's female. looking up the female. Yeah, male. Sine Lathan. Yeah. How do you say your name? Sine. Sine. Sine Lathan. Sine Lathan. Yeah. Yeah. Sine. Alien versus Predator. Yep. Brown Sugar. Yeah. yeah, she was in some good movies. Best Man. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, male. That's a good. It would probably be Barack Obama. All right, right on. Uh, who else? What's who the first thing you'd ask? No, you get, you got it. What's the first no. thing you'd ask Barack? <laughs> I love who to know. Ask Barack. Yeah, what's the first, first thing, thing I'd ask, ask Barack? Yeah. Um, how did he sleep the first day he was out of office? <laughs> <laughs> like a baby. slept really well, right? <laughs> um, yeah, I, I would hope so, but you know, you just don't turn that on and off. Yeah, that's a good point. <laughs> we couldn't let that go for a little while. All right, right. Sherrod, let, let, that's a great uh, lineup. I would definitely check out your talk show for that night. Uh, last topic, tell us uh, about your family. So, my family, I'm, it's my second, uh, I've been married twice. I have a 38-year-old son. I have a 36-year-old son. I have a 16-year-old son. And I have a 7-year-old daughter. Uh, 
She she was brought into your life because it sounds like you had too much testosterone for a while. Well, yeah. <laughs> uh, my wife is is 15 years younger than me. So, and I have grandkids that are older than my daughter. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, hey, give us give us your sons and your daughters uh, names and and your, your wife's name. My oldest son is is my namesake, Gerard Jr. My middle son is Chris. My youngest son is Jelani. My only daughter is Natalie. And my wife's name is Natasha. Right on. All right. So last question. How'd you meet Natasha? <laughs> so she always got something to say about this. But so I was at a bar one night. And I was talking to the bartender who I thought was really cute. And I saw this young lady walk in and I said, whoa, who is that? But no one knew. And so she had turned around and she had walked out. And I was going through my divorce at the time. So I really hadn't been out, kind of still a little skittish. Like, uh. So one of my best friends says, we're going out Thanksgiving, the day before Thanksgiving, big party. We're going to go out. So I said, she said, come on. So we go out to this club on Long Island and I'm sitting at the bar and I look across and I said, oh my goodness, that's the girl that I saw at the other bar. So I kept looking at her, trying to get her attention and I'm, I'm drinking, I'm getting a little, getting my courage up, get my liquid courage, you know? So I walk around to the other side of the bar. And I asked her, I said, yeah, can I have your name? And she was like, well, I don't want to dance. And I'm saying, well, I don't want to ask you that. I just really want to know your name. I don't know if she told it to me then. Maybe she did. But then I went back around and I sat down and there was another guy checking around. And I think he sent her a drink over. And by the middle of the night, we had met again on the dance floor. We were we were dancing, and we kept dancing like all night. And at the end of the night, she'll tell you. She says, "I was waiting for him to ask me for the number, but I didn't know whether she liked me. I, you know, I had seen her upstairs with another dude. I, I didn't know, you know, I liked her. So she gave me her number, and we just became really good friends. Um, and." I, and it, from that, we just, we hung out like all the time. I remember asking me, she's like, when are you going to kiss me? I'm like, well, I mean, we're hanging out, but that doesn't mean, you know, you like me again. I'm going through a divorce, you know. Not the most confident time in your life, I imagine. Yeah, yeah. I'm not trying to misread somebody, you know. Um, and the rest. You know, it's, it's, it's history, you know, we moved to, we both had a house less than three miles from each other. We didn't know it. <laughs> uh, and we moved to, you know, Harlem, then we moved to the Bronx, I uh, took a job here. And before that, I took it, I asked her to marry me. So we got married in Turks and Caicos. Uh, nice, beautiful spot to get married. Holy cow, yeah. Yeah, so um, here we here we are. Well, Sherrod, I, I really appreciate uh, you joining us and telling us your story, man. What what an incredible story. I'm so glad you're still with us, man. 
Me too. And I'm sure a lot of folks are glad that I'm here. And as long as I'm here, I'm going to spread some wisdom how, wherever I can go. And, uh, no, the center of the unit is at the center of the unit. Ashland is the center of the universe, right? That's where I am right now, but it's it's meant to be an Ashland thing. It's also meant to be we're focused on you, and that becomes the center of the universe. Okay. Ah, I like that. Okay. Thank you for listening. If you enjoy this episode, please subscribe to wherever you listen to podcasts. We'd also really appreciate if you'd rate and review us. You can find us at scodopodcast.com.